Welcome to Product Decoded, a podcast where we share advice and best practices on how to build and scale great products from the world's top product experts. This podcast is produced by Spiro Ventures and Product Leader Summit. Spiro Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm that is helping entrepreneurs build a future that belongs to everyone. Product Leader Summit's mission is to create a community for product leaders and founders to learn from one another. On today's episode of Product Decoded, our guest is Aaron Levy, CEO and co-founder of Box. Interviewed by me, your Product Decoded co-host, Dan Olson. I'm a product consultant and author of The Lean Product Playbook. This interview was recorded live at a recent Product Leader Summit event. Thanks so much for listening. Now let's get started. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Aaron Levy. All right, well, great, cool. So um, for those people out there that don't know, it's a pretty incredible story. Can you just kind of share the story of Box and how it got started? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay. So we, um, uh, we started, uh, we got the idea for Box in 2004. And um, the, uh, if you remember 2004, it was sort of, uh, it was a weird time on the internet. Um, uh, probably most of this room just worked at Yahoo or were in college. Like, there were only, like, two places it could be. <laughs> so, um, so basically, uh, 2004 was um, in college, our sophomore year of college. And, um, and I had an internship at the time at uh, 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 Paramount Pictures um, in L.A. and um, was uh, in school running around doing a lot of stuff and, and uh, in internship, kind of working a bunch. And, and in both of those environments, um, uh, kind of ran into this problem of it was unnecessarily hard to share files and to be able to work with, with data. So in school, you'd email yourself files, you'd use USB thumb drives, you'd set up FTP accounts to be able to move data. And then at work, um, used uh, Lotus Notes uh, at the time. And in sort of both environments, it felt unnecessarily hard to just get work done and be able to access files from anywhere. So did a school project where I studied the space. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, there weren't a lot of companies that would let you just you know store your data online. There were a couple that, that sort of uh, existed in the late 90s, and they had kind of died out. Um, and so we, we kind of got this idea where if you took the cost of computing and that was dropping pretty rapidly, Browsers were starting to get sort of faster and, and, and better with the emergence of Firefox, and internet bandwidth started to improve pretty uh, dramatically. And so we, we had this idea, well, what if we just now could finally um, efficiently store data in one place and then create a simple application to let people access their files from anywhere? So now, obviously, it's, that's a pretty obvious idea, but back in 2004, um, we were fortunate that there wasn't that much competition. It wasn't a, a, as busy of a landscape as it is today. So we wrote the very initial application. It was called Box.net, very um, a simple idea. You could pay $2.99 per month, and you got a gigabyte of, uh, of storage. Um, so uh, um, so we, we launched this, and all of a sudden, people just started signing up. And it turned out that we kind of struck a chord, and, and uh, a lot of other people had this, this need to be able to store and access their files from anywhere. Um, and so that was about one uh, fortieth of the story. So yeah. do, do you want that level of, of granularity, no, or should we? The okay. I mean, do you mean there's also some cool stuff about like you were in a garage at one point. We were in a garage. Right? Okay, so, should we yeah. talk about the garage? Sure, talk about. Okay, the garage. so yeah. so uh, it's like Steve Jobs, you know. And you have to. You have. There has to have been a point where there's some garage related to your story exactly. Uh, exactly. in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So uh, so we uh, we too have our garage. Uh, so we we um, uh, we got this email from we, we emailed Mark Cuban and uh, and he, he responded saying, Hey, would you you, would you uh, be interested in some investment? And we weren't even pitching Mark. Um, he just kind of came out of the blue and, and uh, decided to propose investing. Um, and um, and so he uh, ended up writing a check for about $300,000 when we were still in college. And 
we were like, holy crap, like if Mark Cuban is, is funding this thing, maybe, maybe it's sort of more legitimate than we even realized. Um, and so sort of by proxy, Mark Cuban's interest sort of led us to, to take it more seriously. We dropped out of college, moved to a garage uh, that was renovated uh, as a sort of live work space. I don't think it was zoned as residential, so it's probably illegal that we were living there. But um, uh, we were living out of this garage. It was uh, 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 myself and three of our, our co-founders that had all dropped out of college. And um, we just were testing lots and lots of different business models. Like literally every single day we would wake up um, and, uh, or, or at least stay up really late and come up with a completely different business model. So we probably had about 200 different ideas of how we were going to monetize and build the service in the first sort of year and a half or so. We eventually moved to Palo Alto, obviously uh, ran into you, and, and we're constantly iterating on our strategies and, and what did we want to become. Um, and then uh, ultimately pivoted uh, and focused 100% on the enterprise market, which is uh, is where we are uh, today. Yeah, so that, I mean, you started out consumer in a lot of storage places, like you send it and start out consumer. So do you want to talk a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about the pivot and how yeah. you decided to do that? Yeah, so um, so we, uh, it probably took a little bit too long. So it, it took us, I don't know, I, I like to say that it was was relatively straightforward. I think if that's uh, definitely revisionist history. I probably, <laughs> I think it was delaying it for as long as possible. I, like, you know, we were 22 and 23 at the time and like literally the worst thing you could have told me at that age was you're going to build an enterprise software company. Like there's like, like literally, like there's not, a, there wouldn't Sexy be a job. Yeah, Sexy there's job, not, right? not like a worse career path that I could have imagined <laughs> is building an enterprise software company. So, no offense. Um, but, uh, 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 but, but I mean, I'm in it now. So, uh, uh, so, so, uh, you know, we were 22, 23 and we had dropped out of college because we had this like grand ambitious vision of like, consumer storage for the masses, everybody would be able to put their files online and be able to get to them from anywhere, and that was, that was uh, the kind of root of the, the basis of the company. But what we realized, I mean, it was like very basically, like if we had just even, you know, maybe had one more semester of business school, um, uh, we would have understood this. But on the consumer side of the market, you could see some pretty dramatic um, headwinds where the cost of storage was going to continue to drop uh, precipitously, which would mean that big companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, would just give you the storage for free as a consumer, and then they want your data, and they can mine it and monetize it. Um, conversely, on the enterprise side, uh, which was a market we hadn't really kind of identified, but, but what was happening was end users were bringing Box uh, into the enterprise as a simple way to share files as opposed to using products like Microsoft SharePoint or Lotus Notes or traditional kind of document management software. And so there was this entire market that was literally like maybe two orders of magnitude larger than the consumer space, maybe three, uh, that we didn't even identify as a market but that we were kind of being pulled into. And so it took us maybe, I don't know, six plus months to, to fully get around this idea that what if we were the kind of disruptive technology to traditional document management software and collaboration technology. And so right around kind of late 2000, about mid-2007 um, is when we sort of decided to uh, move all of our energy from being a consumer just primarily uh, focused on sort of the personal use cases uh, company to still being focused on the end user but going after the enterprise. And there was a, a juncture, and again, it kind of took a little while, so it wasn't like the overnight epiphany. Like, I had to be convinced by my co-founder, um, uh, a couple of the co-founders, uh, many, many times, uh, to, that this was the right direction to, to go in. But what we kind of landed on was, okay, if we're gonna do enterprise, then we're gonna at least do it with, uh, hopefully, as, many of the, as much of the sort of ethos of a consumer company as possible. So uh, we sort of listed out all of the things that, that we thought sucked about enterprise technology. And we sort of said, what if we did the opposite of all of those things? So, you know, nobody- George Costanza strategy. Yeah, like so that was basically, uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that was sort of the idea was, was, what if we said, okay, 
How do you do customer service differently than traditional enterprise software? How do you build customers so it's utilization-based as opposed to they have to buy the whole thing up front? How do you make it end-user driven as opposed to uh, make it so you have to buy the whole thing before you even see if it works for you? How do you make it consumer driven so the user experience is much more consumer-like? How do you drive constant innovation and kind of continuous innovation as opposed to the, sort of these two or three year product cycles that you tend to get in enterprise software? So we had a list of maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 different things that we said, this is what we think will define the modern cloud era enterprise software company, and it will resemble much more of a consumer company than an enterprise company, but it will sell to enterprises. And the, that was a sort of decision that we made in, uh, in 2007, and then from that point forward, the past decade, we've been 100% focused on selling to the enterprise, but effectively 100% focused on delivering value for the end user and the actual employees of the organization, the people that we ultimately tried to build the product for in the first place, just aimed at enterprise use cases. Cool, yeah, and I know that, I remember when I was there, we were, there was like rumors that Google was working on something. Yeah. G Drive was coming. G -Drive. So there was like this looming threat. Like, any any uh, ex-Googlers in here? Okay, I, you, you really ruined a couple of years of my life, so uh, <laughs> just, just FYI, um, you, I, you're the reason I have like extreme PTSD on, <laughs> on any kind of competitive thing, so. Yeah, how yeah. did you deal with that? I mean, I remember you guys yeah. were worried about it. It was like nothing you could, like, nothing you know, you could do. they're going to do it or they're not. Yeah, like, how do you deal with that situation? Uh, no offense, guys. It was like the worst <laughs> that you, things you could do. So like the, basically what would happen was like Wall Street Journal would report on this product called Platypus or Lighthouse, uh, which was the code name for Google Drive. Yeah. And it just stalled the market for like four years. Like I couldn't get any funding. It was, it was <laughs> like unbelievably bad. So, um, uh, so it was, but I mean, maybe, maybe in, you know, I guess I, I don't know, I'm having a real time thought on this one. The, um, uh, maybe it was a good thing yeah. uh, because it, it sort of forced us much more quickly to have to pivot the company. Yeah. So actually, I think everybody from Google, thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. um, we may, maybe we would have prolonged the consumer side, the consumer okay, side yeah, to the cool. point where we, actually, yeah, wow. All right, great. Thanks, Thanks Google. Go. All right, cool. So, right. so we were just dealing with <laughs> this onslaught of competition uh, from the big incumbents, and you know, it was you had three kind of categories of competitors. You had sort of the traditional enterprise um, sort of storage and infrastructure players, so the hardware guys, so EMC, NetApp, et cetera. Then you had the enterprise software companies like Microsoft and Documentum, and then you had the consumer companies that were kind of bleeding in to the enterprise. And um, very busy landscape. I mean, much of that competitive landscape still exists today. And what we had to identify early on were, like, what are the things that we think are going to be distinctly um, our, our advantages? And, um, and a lot of this, uh, there's a really, really good book um, that I'm obsessed with um, called Seven Powers. Uh, you have to read this book uh, if you're in product management. It's a, uh, uh, it's a really great book. And, um, and it sort of diagnoses the sort of seven competitive advantages that you can build up over time. Um, and it's all of the things that we already kind of know instinctively, but it, it kind of categorizes them awesome. very nicely. And so um, the, 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 the ultimate sort of advantage that I think we built in very early on were probably a couple where one was the sort of pure disruption angle, which is kind of Clay Christensen, Innovator's Dilemma. We were just literally 10 times cheaper, uh, and we were impossible for the incumbents to respond to because of just our cost basis and our architecture. Like, we could just deliver our service at a much lower cost than what SharePoint or traditional software is going to be sold for. So one was just, based, anytime you can find yourself delivering something at a 10x you know, cheaper way than, than your competitor, that's, that's a really, really good starting point to have. Um, the other was um, we, we sort of balanced the consumer in, uh, 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 user experience with the enterprise capabilities in a way that no incumbent really could. That was based on just the, from the product managers that we hired early on, 
to the designers that we hired, to just how we thought about delivering the service. I'd say those two things are probably most fundamental in the early stages was have a disruptive business model and make sure that we're doing something that literally the DNA of our incumbents can't respond to. Like they just don't have the wherewithal to compete with a company that sort of blends consumer and enterprise in the way that we did. And those were two early lessons that, that you know, we've, we've largely taken with us you know, to this day. Cool. I think I've heard you call it asymmetries, right? Asymmetries, asymmetries. yes. You asymmetric always, warfare. You want to have, uh, right. unfortunately, it gets pretty brutal. So you do want to have some asymmetric advantages. And, uh, and, and whether it's business model or talent or your underlying processes within the organization, you better make sure that you have something that, that literally uh, competitors can't respond to because of their business model or technology architecture. Cool. Well, I know you recently gave a talk at Stanford. You shared some awesome nuggets of product wisdom. I thought those were the nuggets. You just showed me the real <laughs> long list. So maybe we, we can share some. All the so, I know. Yeah, yeah, we can't give away. We have all. secret yeah. nuggets, and then yeah, we've exactly. Got so maybe you can share nuggets. like what may, share what's a, what's one of the top nuggets that would be good to share with the product leaders here. Oh man. Uh, so um, I don't. I don't know. There's a there's a few different uh, things that we we sort of think about. Um, uh, depending on the kind of stage of, of company that you're at. I mean, the, the stuff, so we, we did this talk about um, all the little kids that are building enterprise software companies at Stanford, which of which there's like three. So um, so they have not been convinced yet that this is an exciting space, so we're working on it. Um, but uh, took some kind of lessons of how we got to uh, to where we are. I mean, I think the things that are probably most, uh, that, that remain top of mind is, and the things that we benefited from, um, you know, we got really, really lucky without even knowing it. Um, and... And we built something that was 10 times simpler than the incumbent technologies in the space. And I think it's so hard because if I had actually known what I know now about our category of technology and I went to go design a product, our initial product would be 10 times more complex than what we started with. And that would not have been disruptive. And, and that would not have features. Scope, and right? Features everywhere. And we would have had buttons going into buttons and into modals of drop downs. And so like... Like it was, so, we were so fortunate that we knew nothing about the category we were disrupting, because it, it just caused us to to think like, what is the actual problem that the human has, and how do we just solve that, as opposed to thinking through compliance and privacy and workflow and all of the different shit that we all have to deal with all day long as we're building products, especially if you're in the enterprise. And and it, it, that lesson was was basically, and and we were, um, you know, we were literally kind of considered to be a toy. By the the by by the competitive landscape, right. and we were called out as completely deficient of the features that an enterprise would need to be able to share files or manage their content. And yet, that was the only way that we could be disruptive to to the to the category. And so, you know, the the the, the I, I think there's probably rarely a product that any of us are building that um, that couldn't remove. A significant, you know, chunk of the sort of functionality or things that sort of show up to the user. And so the first question you have to ask yourself is like, is what you're building overkill to the the problem that you're solving? Um, and is there a better way to kind of create a wedge into a user base that then you expand from, especially early stage? I mean, you see a lot of early stage products that are insanely feature rich, and it's just it will never be disruptive because it, it's trying to be more comprehensive than the incumbent as opposed to simpler and just focusing on the the, the bare minimum things that the incumbents weren't responding. To. And so in our, I can say this in, in retrospect, again, we didn't know it at the time, but has anybody ever used this product called Microsoft SharePoint? Oh, okay, great. Well, is everybody here like Microsoft or something? So, okay. So, so SharePoint. You want to thank Microsoft too? Yeah, actually, thank you for building that. So, um, uh, so, so SharePoint is, is sort of the classic disruptive uh, uh, case because what happened with, was 
over about a 15-year period, it just became more and more feature-rich, and it just became, it just solved more and more problems. It started out as this basic sort of document management service, file, file storage service, and then it said, okay, let's do content management, and then it said, let's do workflow, and then it said, let's do website content management, and then let's do extranets, and then let's do intranets, and then it became a complete application development platform, and all of a sudden, you, you can solve literally like world hunger with SharePoint. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, you can't share files anymore, right, right, right. because all of those things that they built out ended up effectively making the end user experience completely encumbered with all of this functionality. And we got really lucky because right at the time where SharePoint was vastly more powerful than what most people needed, you had the rise of mobile devices, you had the rise of just more and more sort of like constant sharing and collaboration. And that one use case that they started with now was actually 10 times more important to the world, but it had been sort of drowned out by all of these other things that, that they were building up to be able to sell to larger and larger and more complex enterprises. So we got lucky because what we did was we just, we just peeled off the most important part of that functionality and did it in a vastly simpler way. And that was the base of, of then our, our platform effectively. And we, got, we were fortunate because we got to learn their lesson. So we haven't sort of gone down that same path and repeated that same mistake. We'll probably make other mistakes. But, but ultimately, by, by sort of taking advantage of the, the, the thing that they weren't paying attention to, that was yet most important to end users ended up being sort of our disruptive advantage. So find that wedge, which is the thing that the incumbent isn't paying attention to, but yet is becoming increasingly important, um, is sort of one of the biggest lessons that we've learned. I think uh, there's a lot of, of lessons that, that, at least in our space in particular, around living at the intersection of consumer and enterprise that tends to be really, really important, especially um, when you have so many enterprises that are asking for just more and more complex features and, and they want privacy and security and compliance and international data residency and lots of you know, audit logs and all of that is, can, can truly wear down your entire product or engineering organization if you don't think about it and, and do it properly. Um, and so there's just a whole bunch of things over the years that we've had to learn around how do you build consumer-grade software for the enterprise and how do you keep the discipline that, that usually is so easy to compromise on when that big sort of two or three or five million dollar deal comes in from sales and it's you're that moment of truth, which is like, it literally is like, like this big moral quandary, which is like, you, you can go win that deal, which will, it'll fund the company for like the next two years. And by saying no, you're gonna get like the entire sales team incredibly <laughs> pissed off at you. Yeah. But if you build it, it will fundamentally alter the entire course of your company because that will become the foundation of a completely different product strategy or it will encumber the user experience or now you'll have a massive amount of legacy tech debt that you're going to have to maintain forever from some set of specialized customers. We've all dealt with that. And, uh, and it's those moments of truth ultimately where uh, you really have to be insanely clear on your North Star and, the, and, and have the discipline to either say no to those things or find a way to get the customer to uh, feel like they are getting what they want without you having to then alter the fundamentals of, of that strategy. And that, that's like real jujitsu of, of the, the situation. Um, and I'm, I don't think we've perfected it, but we've gotten lucky at many times where we've been able to actually kind of harness the energy from the customer and turn around a big you know, major ask that would have been fundamentally disruptive to us and turn it into something that we could then um, you know, go out and, and, and deploy uh, in a way that sort of is aligned to our strategy. But then there's also been times where we've left, we've left uh, tens of millions of dollars on the table over the years um, by saying no to functionality that we just felt like instinctively was not going to be the right thing to build for, for the long run. And, uh, and it's that discipline that is, is incredibly hard. Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, a lot of you guys probably were, I was just talking about this in my workshop, it's like sales is out there 
they're going to say yes to any request, right? And if you're in the header product, <laughs> um, and so what advice do you have for these there guys? Like, there was like sales? uncomfortable yeah, 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 about like, 30% yeah, yeah. of the room. Most of my PM humor is like funny but sad. Yeah. You know? it's, like, it's, like, <laughs> it's like just traumatic. Yeah, exactly. So, but, so let's get practical. What advice, if, if you're the product for these guys, if the sales yeah. team's coming and saying, they're going to write a big check, we got to say yes. Like, what are some tips or advice you have on how to get them to focus, stay focused on North Star and be able to yeah. say no, which yeah. is the definition? I think, I think you have to be in the room with the customer. I think you have to. Um, the good news is, and we're really lucky right now for anybody who's building enterprise software, because in 2017, I do fundamentally believe the right customers to sell to are the ones that are willing to recognize that this is a journey in, in, in software and in the cloud era where they, like the right customers that you want to have are the ones that recognize that like, the legacy way of sort of like sending out the RFP, the, the vendor builds exactly what's in the RFP, and then they just get it shipped to them. That's the wrong way to build software today in the enterprise. It, we are all, if you're in the enterprise, we are services companies. We're not sort of package software and send it to the customer companies. So now you have to be able to bridge the customer's sort of tendencies and buying behaviors and relationship with vendors that they once had to this new way of working. And I think that requires not just the sales team to be consultative, but the product team to be consultative. We have to be in the room with the customer and understand their needs, understand their requirements, but don't just build to those needs or requirements. Build a solution that can get them what they are asking for, but not what they're sort of, you know, not in the way that they're asking for. And that's, and, and honestly, it's like, it's so easy to say because it's like, this is literally like how you'd abstract it out as advice. And it's in, either incredibly hard to, to actually, you know, maintain the discipline to do. Um, and also, uh, it's, you're, it's not going to work all the time. And in the times where it doesn't work, where you try like 50 times to convince the customer in a thoughtful way where they feel like, again, they're getting what they want. And if they still say no, then that's the moment of truth. And again, we have had to say no to that customer many, many times, and we've lost many deals. Now, the customers that we have wanted to work with and the customers that, that have really pushed our limits are the ones where they gave in a little bit and we gave in a little bit. We ended up with a better solution, usually a solution we didn't initially identify. They got what they wanted ultimately. And in fact, it actually created a better relationship with them in the process because they felt like, okay, this is a real partnership with this cloud company as opposed to, the, again, the traditional vendor model of like, they just ship me the technology. And so we all have an opportunity to build better relationships with, with some of these more complex customers and really kind of get to what is the, what is the, I mean, this is just your classic kind of Clay Christensen again of like, what is the job that they're hiring us to do? And, in, and if you build exactly what they're asking for, then you might not actually even be building for what the job is. And, and in our world, just to make this practical, the job that the, that the customer hires Box to do is to help their employees be able to share their information in a secure way. A lot of times the requests that they'll have actually are contradictory to, to the job that they're hiring us for. And so if we can help the customer sort of bridge those two things and help them recognize that you've hired us to help employees be productive and share, this requirement will actually impair that, which will mean that you don't get the value that you're looking for and thus you won't actually use our software, then all of a sudden light bulbs go off and we can actually get to a better sort of solution with the customer. But they, you have to have a shared goal that you both agree on, even if you're going to be coming from slightly different perspectives. So that's number one. You also, also obviously have to make sure that leadership is willing to make the trade-offs in the right areas. And, um, and obviously, depending on where the kind of you know, influence or power is in, in some of these decisions, sometimes you do go down a path where it tends to be more sales-led. Um, and, uh, and, and, and sales-led, by definition, doesn't mean that it's going to be um, just driven by the RFP, but it does mean that, that there's slight differences in incentives that you want to be very thoughtful of. And that's what we kind of contend with all day long in, uh, in our organization. 
All right, cool. Well, you just tell me. I mean, back in the day, we were all fit in one room, and now we have 1,600 people at Box. So, and you've IPO'd, and you know, uh, as companies get larger, it can be a challenge to stay innovative. Yeah. You know, we were talking the other day. I don't know how many of you guys read uh, Jeff Bezos' shareholder letter. He talked about day two versus day one. The great stuff. So, how do you tackle that at Box? How do you stay innovative there? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's always a, a work in progress. I'm, we're not. Uh, I, I'm not at Jeff. Bezosian levels of like imparting like sage <laughs> advice uh, on this I issue. I saw the list. Yeah, okay, it's a good right, list. Right. Um, I, you, I think you, you saw me run through the yeah, list. Yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah, you saw yeah, the words. True. That could have been just that's like true. nonsense. That's so, true. Um, but um, these are the nuggets. Um, yeah. So um, it was actually just a Facebook feed. But I, I think so. I was just showing you my Twitter feed. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, one of the challenges that, that you have obviously going public is we now have uh, a whole bunch of external shareholders. The, you know, you have you have Wall Street. Wa Wall Street wants predictability, as they probably should, and so we have to deliver a certain amount of predictability. And 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 so when you have predictability um, as one of the goals, uh, you know, from uh, from you know the, the 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 sort of one of the biggest external constituents that that sort of we depend on, um, you have this risk of that can sort of seep into the organization in very sort of small but pernicious ways where all of a sudden the planning process of the organization starts to be really about being predictable as opposed to being sort of ambitious, where people, when they sign up for goals in the organization, they want to make sure they hit the goal because, because when we hit the goal, that's how we get you know, sort of the market to understand what we're doing. And they don't, you don't want to sort of set up for a crazy goal, come in well under, and then have people sort of react pretty negatively. And so you have this sort of general set of, of kind of conservatism that can kind of creep into the organization if you're not careful. And so we 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 run this, and you and this is sort of you can see this in spades within product because when you're in product, like this is like every single dollar that you spend on engineering time and what we're going to go build is is a trade off, and it it has to go into what you think or what we all think are the highest productivity areas of investment. And the challenge is, if you're a public company, some of those investments have to pay off in the near term. Uh, but if too many of those investments are just about the near term, then in two or three or five years from now, all you've done is push the, the problem down to the next product manager or the next team down the road that's going to have to deal with the fact that you didn't have those long-term investments. And so we run into this challenge, which is sort of how do you allocate your, your investments? How do you allocate your energy? Uh, and how do you make decisions in a way where you can both deliver the predictable near-term results as well as make sure that you're still doing some fundamental innovation that is going to sort of be your next act or the next set of things that, that you want to go solve for? So what, what, we try and, what we try, again, haven't perfected, what we try and uh, uh, you know, think about and spend our time doing is how do we make you know, product decisions that, that are... Um, that are uh, sort of well-informed by where we think the market's going, where we think the technology industry is going, what we think our customers are going to want, but not so conservative, not so driven by data that they sort of lose the essence of why you do product management in the first place. Like the, the whole point is like, there's a reason that we're not just data analysts, that we're product managers, and that is because our job is to go make product decisions based on a set of influences that based on our judgment of where we think the world is going from a technology standpoint. And so, um, so it's, it's all about sort of forcing that into the system that I tend to have to do because it would be so easy to become so myopic around the data that you only start to make decisions once you reach some kind of threshold where, okay, 14% of our customer base is asking for this feature and so we will just go build it. Well, what if only 1% of the customer base has identified that this is the future and, and we want that two-year head start when we go build it? So how do you go into, into all of the different kind of you know, data points that are gonna be out there 
and make sure you're making the decisions that are going to be able to, 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 to you know, actually drive innovation. And a lot of that can only be done on a qualitative basis. And that's, that's where our own judgment comes into play. That's where our, instinct, our, our instinctive um, you know, sort of decision, uh, you know, decisions come into play. And, uh, and a lot of my time is just making sure uh, that we are trying to balance those big bets that are really meant for the long run with you know, all the, just the constant iteration and, and work that we have to do with, with just a, you know, a large product. Cool. And you just mentioned judgment. I know we talked about how early on you may not have a lot of data. You use more judgment. Right. And as you get bigger, all of a sudden you have analytics and data out the wazoo. So can you talk a little bit about the role of judgment versus data in decision making? Yeah. Um, and this is just to clarify, this is not like a data science conference, right? Sure. No. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. can I throw all no, the, can I, can I throw the yeah. data people under the bus? Or sure. Yeah, yeah. So. Thunder crab, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, clearly, like, the perfect uh, sort of way to do this is some harmonious combination of, of kind of data, judgment, and design, and, and so you, you get the three together, and, and obviously all powered by engineering. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I, what I would, gen personally, what I rely on, this is not necessarily true of all product managers, or, but what I rely on are, is sort of, you want to have pretty strong conviction about where you think your, the world is going and where your product should thus be going because of, of where the world is going. And, and it helps if you can be your best customer. So in our case, we just get to be our best customer because we, we live and work in our product and, and we can just sort of see all the pain points and all the flaws. And this isn't true in, of every area in our product because we deal with a lot of you know, companies that, that, that we don't necessarily have the highest degree of empathy for, like you know, a pharma company. We have to respect their uh, kind of requirements and needs as well. But but in general, you should have very strong conviction about where the world's going, how you think your product should sort of play out at a, at a pretty, you know, pretty high level of, of granularity, um, a, a deep level of granularity, and, um, and then be able to make sort of calls on, on what to build, when to build it, but then use data to actually find out where those calls right, and how do you now need to iterate based on the calls that you made? So, so I would rather have use judgment to decide what to build, and use data to decide how to improve it, and whether or not to shut it down, or how to keep iterating and optimizing it, than use data to tell us what to build. Um, and uh, and that's a slight nuance, and it, it all I mean it, it may be a meaningless nuance, but but because you're lots of data data is coming in lots of different forms. Like we we have sort of a large basket of things that that you know we generally know our customers want, but really ultimately like there's no perfect answer to what to build next. So you could either spend you know months and months belaboring and and trying to figure out what to build next, or you can have a high degree of confidence and, and use judgment and, and actually sort of, you know, start cranking on that. And ultimately, we th I think our best decisions have been made when we just went with judgment. So very small example, super old school, um, but, but it, I think it, it's one that at least was a, an important inflection point for us where we, um, and I think any product manager would have made the same decision, but when you think about it as a, as a broader company, it, it's sort of like you, ha you feel like you have to justify it. But um, uh, when the iPad first came out, we... Um, uh, you know, I think everybody in this room was probably watching the keynote, uh, you know, live streamed at like 10 a.m. or whatever. We're all watching it. And uh, basically, iPad came out, and within like about two or three hours, we were in a brainstorm session that we called to say, what is our iPad app going to look like? And as soon as we kind of had a rough sketch of what the iPad app would look like, we just said, okay, let's go put engineers on this. And this was like within the first day or two of, of uh, you know, after the brainstorm, we put engineers on the iPad. 
um, to start to go, to go and, and build it out. And, um, and uh, I think it was like probably a, a few month window between sort of when the iPad was out, or sorry, when, I mean, it, it was a few month window when it was announced, so when the iPad's mm-hmm. out and the, the app store. And on day one of, of being able to download iPad apps, we were the only product in our market that would let you do sort of sharing and collaboration and content management on the iPad. And we had a lot of like questions internally, like, well, how do we know how big this is going to be? And do we think that actually, you know, uh, professionals are going to be using it? And shouldn't we wait to see when people buy the iPad? And it was like, listen, if fucking Steve Jobs <laughs> is betting his company <laughs> on on this yeah. device, like. Like, don't you think like we could put like two engineers on this problem? Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like it's Steve Jobs. Like, yeah, it'll yeah. be okay. Yeah. Like, like you know, it'll it'll probably work out. And worst case scenario, we bet on Steve Jobs and it didn't work. So, yeah. so it was like it was like, all you really needed was like one you know proxy, which was like Steve Jobs has bet on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So you you can right. right. So. Um, and uh, and then guess what? Like lo and behold, that was actually one of the most important inflection points for us as we were kind of scaling up because all of a sudden executives in all of these old school enterprises went out and bought an iPad and they were like, I can't get to my files from my iPad. So they started downloading Box and they called up their IT person and they said, hey, how do we get this for our company? And that was like one of our biggest drivers of growth for, from about 2010 to like 2013. And it was, you know, it was two engineers to build an iPad app just based on no data other than this is this is probably the future and if it's not we're just betting on like the world's best product person of all time cool. so big deal so we have apple to thank too yeah, then right? yeah and so thank you if you actually anybody um, here did the ipad and i know you're big on tailwinds that's a pretty good tailwind steve jobs it's a very tailwind. good and, and, and i think it points back to that which is like um, you have to like in our business as a startup you have to make sure that like you have way more momentum kind of pushing you than things that are kind of pushing against you. And again, one of those sort of trite things, but like if you really kind of diagnose your business strategy, just make sure you have as many tailwinds as humanly possible. And for us, we've benefited our every year from some new set of tailwinds. And we always try and make sure that we take something that could be either a headwind or neutral. If we can flip it into a tailwind, uh, we we try and do that. And, um, and, and so uh, uh, whether it's your technology architecture, whether it's the platforms that you're building on, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, again, asymmetric sort of advantages you can have against competition, uh, whatever the kind of technology tailwind is in the market, just make sure you're riding that as much as possible. Cool, awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron. Who's joining me? Thank, Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Awesome, bud. Cool. Thanks to our guest for joining. If you enjoyed this episode of Product Decoded, please take a minute to share it with your colleagues and leave a review on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Spiro Ventures and Product Leader Summit. Learn more at spiro.vc and productleadersummit.com. Thanks for listening to Product Decoded, and we'll see you next time.